Hey dog people of the internet, welcome to Cog Dog Radio, a podcast all about dog sports, behavior, and training. I'm your host, Sarah Stremming of the Cognitive Canine, and I can't wait to share my behavior cases, training revelations, and general geekery with you. Let's get started. When a dog study makes the cover of Science Magazine, everybody pays attention. When the dog study is interpreted as meaning that dog breeds don't matter when we're thinking about personality or behavioral traits, people really pay attention. People are mad about it. Some people are agreeing with it. There's a lot of different opinions floating around about this paper. And so I wanted to bring on one of the authors who happens to be a friend of mine and a repeat guest on the podcast, Dr. Jessica Heckman to talk about what this paper actually says, what it doesn't say, what the research really looked like behind the scenes, and more. So here's our interview. All right, everybody. I have Dr. Jessica Heckman here with me today to talk about the paper, Ancestry Inclusive Dog Genomics Challenges Popular Breed Stereotypes, which you may have heard about because it's been really circulating the internet. There's a variety of different articles with all kinds of inflammatory titles like breed doesn't matter and things like that and all the, the dog people of the internet are all abuzz about this. So Jessica, will you get started by just telling us what your responsibility was with this paper? Yeah, actually, as you were saying that, I was just thinking, I think the paper is doing so well because of its snappy title. <laughs> yes. Don't you think so? I, it's very snappy. Very Definitely. Nice. Rolled off the so, tongue. Yeah. So I am the, I'm the second author on the paper. So in, uh, in academia, the order of authorship is very important. So the, the first author, uh, who is Kathleen Morrill, is a graduate student. And that's very, that's very common for the first author to be a student. And so she did, oh, she did the lion's share of the work. And she's, she's awesome. And she's brilliant. And she loves dogs. Um, she's a Papillon owner, but I have convinced her that Border Paps are awesome. And so she and I like look at Border Paps on the internet and she did, so she did the bulk of this work and she is a great person, by the way, she's actively answering questions about the paper um, and is a great person to ask sort of the nitty gritty details because she's the one who's holding all of the information in her head. So then the other really important personality on any paper is the last author, which may be counterintuitive to some, but in academia, the last author is typically the person who runs the laboratory the, who, that the paper came out of. So for us, this is Dr. Eleanor Carlson. She runs Carlson Laboratory, which is uh, the, the little dog-focused laboratory at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard. Um, and so the last author is typically the person who will, you know, importantly comes up with the funding, right? Like finds, deals with that, but then is the person who designs it and sort of is the guiding force behind it, helps the grad student learn how to do all the analyses. And then all the people in between, of which there are generally a gazillion on genetics papers, um, have contributed in some way or another different chunks of the project. So what I contributed, um, I did a bunch, although not all of the analysis, um, looking at the, what we call phenotypes. So the, the personality traits, which are survey answers, looking at the phenotypes associated with uh, whether, how closely they were associated with breed, um, which is, I know one of the things that people are very interested in talking about, a lot of that analysis was also done by Eleanor. The other big role that I had in the paper, probably the larger role, honestly, was um, developing the what we call the factor analysis. So as, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, later in this interview, we asked a lot of survey questions, um, a whole lot. I think we used, uh, I think we used 100, maybe 110 of them in this paper. Um, and that's just a lot of questions to put in an analysis. So uh, we did what a lot is a very common approach to do, which was break them into factors. So I ran a statistical analysis that looked at all of those questions and said, which of these questions tend 
to have sort of correlations between them. So if you know, if you answer this way on question one, do you always then tend to answer that way on question 58? And if so, then one in 58 seem to have some sort of a relationship to each other. And so from that statistical analysis, we got eight groups of questions and those we call factors. So each group has some number of questions in them. They're ranked from one to eight on the ones that have the most variation in them to the ones that there's very little variation. So they're a bit less interesting. And then we went and looked at those questions and decided, or those groups and decided, well, so let's read the questions in them and decide what those questions are sort of talking about. And so that's where we came up with the factors that we call um, like sociability and fitability and toy directed motor patterns and things like that. Um, so that was that. And then I did a lot on the website, honestly. So we were collecting all this data through the Darwin's Ark website. And um, I keep forgetting about that because it, it was a while ago, but I was a, a force in helping get that. Um, well, it's, it's funny. Okay, so somebody else did the initial design of the website and then we uh, hired a design company to, to rebuild it. And I was the liaison with the design company. And mm. It was a lot of work. It was a lot of work, so. Okay. So in short, you did a bunch of stuff. And worked but really not hard, everything. But not everything. <laughs> not everything. Okay. What were the goals of this project? So it was really a bunch of different projects. Um, in order to get into a really high impact factor journal like science, you don't have just one study in an article. You have a, a bunch of studies that are all sort of related, um, coming at the same question from different directions. So this, this question that has been the most covered by the media of are there sort of personality types for breeds? Um, that was one question we were interested in looking at. Um, other questions we looked at were things like, uh, well, the, the really big one was we wanted to do an analysis to see if we could find regions of the genome. So this was that this part actually included the DNA sequencing. See if we could find areas of the DNA that were associated with particular behavioral traits for which you need a really, really large sample size. And we did, we did find some, some initial signals there and just validating that that approach even worked by seeing if we could find the regions of the genome associated with size in dogs. Um, which the approach that approach worked very very well, and so we have a really good size predictor now based on we can sequence your dog and predict how big the dog is, which is you know not all that interesting retro retroactively, uh, yeah. but is very a very cool thing to to be able to do just by looking at some sequences of DNA. Um, one one of the things that we did was the studies that have done that kind of work before where they try to look and see, are there behavioral signals in the DNA of dogs? The way they've done that before is they take a bunch of dog sequences and then from different breeds, and then they go and they take some kind of a breed average. So they assume that all the dogs of that breed are pretty much behaviorally similar. And they do something like either they go to a, a database like CBARC, the Canine Behavior and Research Questionnaire, and they get sort of a breed average out of there, um, or I think there was some studies that would go and like sort of take the AKC description of dogs and use that. So one of the things that this study does, which to me is a massive step forward for this kind of behavioral genetics in dogs, is we actually looked at the behavior of the individual dogs and used that to do the study rather than assuming that all dogs of one breed were behavioral clones of each other. The other really big thing that we did that I think is so cool is we sequenced mutts and looked at mutts pretty deeply for the first time. So far as I can tell, we haven't found any other papers out there that really look at mixed breed dogs. A lot of the, all the studies so far had been really focused on purebred dogs. And um, I guess mutts were considered less interesting as research subjects. And there's good reasons for that. Um, purebred dogs are easier to study in some ways because you take a group of purebred dogs and genetically they are pretty similar to each other. You take a group of mutts and they may be genetically very dissimilar from each other. So one of the things that we did was 
look at a bunch of mutts, breed ancestry, call them, and say, you know, the mutts off the street in the United States, how many breeds do they tend to have in them? Do they tend to be just two or three breeds? Or do they tend to be a lot of breeds? And the answer to that was they tend to be a lot of breeds, which was something that no one had looked at before. There was an associated project called Mutt Mix, which you can still check out, by the way, at muttmix.org, a very fun project. I was not involved in that one, but I think it's a really cool project where you go to muttmix.org. Um, this was, it, it ran initially without the answers to the, the question. So they, there were 21 highly mixed breed dogs, and you would get a picture and some video and some description of the dog, and then a list of possible breeds, and you would have to pick what you thought were the top three breeds. It's really hard to do. I started doing it because I don't like to be wrong. I stopped doing it because I didn't know what the answers were. <laughs> that sounds like me. I mean, I'd be like, well, I'm bad at this, so I'm never doing it again. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, I just, I hate, I hate being wrong. I, I'm uh, very similar to my English Shepherd Dashiell in that way. So then, um, and so at the time people weren't given the answers, but then that's, that's been closed, that data was collected. It's obviously published in this paper. So if you go play that game now, you will get the answers at the end. And so we did an analysis of that. And so some of the questions that we asked in this paper were, well, what do people use when they're guessing the breed of a dog? And it's really interesting to discover that people use, first of all, people use things like coat length and ear carriage and leg length. Like if, if a dog had short legs, um, people you know, were very likely to guess dachshund. People were very easily misled by traits like that. And it's, it's, it's interesting, like when you go look at, I, I tell a, the joke that if you go to a, a shelter population of mixed breed dogs, every black and white dog is a border collie mix. Every short haired blocky headed dog is a pit bull mix. Every short haired, not blocky haired, not blocky headed dog who's black is a Labrador mix. And it's, it's interesting that people use those ways of identifying dogs so readily and they are so easily misled by that. Those are just single genes that can come from many different breeds. So there's a really interesting analysis in the paper as well about like what kinds of ways people uh, guess, used what kinds of things people tended to use to guess about what breeds dogs were. So that was pretty neat too. So the paper was written after a lot of different studies were conducted. Like you guys did. There's many years of work. Yeah. So many years of research and compiled it into this paper and, and others, I'm assuming. Pretty much this paper is the big one for all of that work. Yeah. I mean, it's, okay. it is absolutely not the only paper to come out of Carlson lab. Um, Carlson lab does a I bunch know. of other stuff and there's, other papers that have come out recently, but for this group of studies, they were all collected into this one enormous and yet very cut down because science likes short articles, paper science yes. being the name of the journal, by the way. Yes, no, yes. Uh, just for those who don't know, it's published science, in a paper in a journal, journal called Science. In which, which it has been published. published. Yeah, so we had to cut it way down, but they, you know, it's a, because it's so high impact, it has to have, there has to be a lot going on in any article that gets in there. So there was a lot going on in this. It probably could have been broken up into several papers, but we we like one got that we got into that journal, which was our awesome. science. Okay. So let's talk about the data. Because one of the criticisms that I am seeing by the dog people on the internet is the owner reporting of dog behavior in mm -hmm. survey form. So let's talk about the data collection, why those choices were made, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have a lot. I have a lot to say there. I actually, I I teach a class called behavioral biology at Virginia Tech for people who are doing uh, an online animal behavior master's degree, and we have a whole a whole week dedicated to how do you assess personality. Personality is really hard to assess. Mm -hmm. What are ways that people have dealt with assessing personality, and what are pros and cons to that? So. The two main approaches to assessing personality traits, by which I mean behaviors that an animal displays that tend to be fairly constant over time, they can be changed, but they're changed solely, for instance, by behavior modification or by something really major like a trauma. But you think of a personality as sort of a suite of behaviors that tend to be fairly constant over time, right? So how do you assess that? The two main ways are either through um, survey questions, or through some kind of observation. And so with 
with dogs, if we're going to observe them, we need to trigger the behaviors that we're interested in. So that's basically a behavior assessment, which is sometimes called a temperament test. So there's a couple reasons that surveys have been widely accepted in the field as the correct approach for assessing animal personality. I don't, I shouldn't say correct approach, but the, um, the better approach in most cases, as opposed to behavioral assessments. Um, behavioral assessments are very, you, you'd think that you could hire a behavior consultant who understands behavior really well and have them go assess the dog and that they would return a much more accurate report of the dog's personality than asking the owner. Um, because people are quite right to say, but you know, how's the owner going to know if the dog is actually feeling fearful because owners don't read body language well. So the problem with bringing the expert in is the expert is only seeing the animal on one day and everybody has bad days. And it turns out, um, many studies have shown this. And actually my master's work showed something pretty similar. I looked at um, looking at behaviors in stressed dogs in hospitals for my master's degree. It turns out that if you just take a quick snapshot of someone's behavior, that you are much more likely to be wrong and to have an effect of the person taking the snapshot. In other words, different behavior testers will tend to, there will be a big effect of who's doing the behavioral assessment, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. some people will come in being very pushy with the dog and some will come in being very gentle with the dog. And there's just a big effect of that, no matter how well you train people. And taking that single day snapshot, that single hour snapshot gives you a really poor window into the animal's personality. And it turns out that asking someone who knows the animal well is a lot more effective. Now, 100% there are, it's not perfect. Assessing personality is really challenging. That's one of the reasons we have to have a really large sample size is in order to overcome the noise and pick the signal out. Turns out that owners are pretty good at communicating things about their animals if you ask the questions well. And so that was why we took existing surveys that were out there that had been validated, that were known to be pretty good at getting at real information by asking questions in ways that our owners are able to answer. And the other thing that we did was because we have multiple surveys and each survey sometimes would have multiple questions about the same issue that we were trying to get at. So when I mentioned that I pulled things into factors, you know, if there's 20 questions in a factor that get at human sociability in a dog, you know, if I went to an owner and said, is your dog sociable with humans? Yes, I'm going to get a crap answer. But if I ask the owner 20 different questions that come at it from different directions, that is a much better way of picking the signal out of the noise. So it is not perfect. And I am the first person to admit that. Assessing personality is really, really hard, but this is the way that the field has sort of come together to say the best way of assessing animal personality is by doing this and having a large sample size. And by the way, obviously, if we'd had to pay experts to go into people's homes and assess dogs, we would not have a 19,800 dog cohort. We'd have a 20 dog cohort, right? And this would have been a very different paper. Yeah, and I think that the criticism of it being... Of, of this particular area of owners being counted on to report on their own dog's behavior. This comes from people who may have asked those questions that are maybe not great questions of their clients, gotten a certain answer, gone in, assessed the situation and saw that the situation was different from what they felt was reported. Yeah. I have found certainly in my career that if I'm asking the right questions, I will get the right information. That people are not deliberately withholding information from me. And they're also not deliberately getting their dog wrong. They're trying to tell me exactly what they see. They're trying to tell me exactly what they know. But if I ask them something like, like you just said, I love this example. If I ask them like something like, or, or something that I might ask like a breeder of, of some dogs that maybe I'm going to select a puppy out of. If I say, is your dog good with other dogs? I am going to get, you know, most people are going to say yes. Yeah. 
And the reason most people are going to say yes is because if they're breeding this dog, then the answer should be yes. But if I ask a really specific question like, if you are walking your dog on a leash in your neighborhood and an off-leash dog runs out of the garage at your dog, what is likely to happen next? Now I get a real answer. Yeah. So it's so important. You said this word that I think, you know, not everybody understands. You're in academia, and so you fully understand these words. But can you explain actually what a validated survey question means? I'm sitting here giggling. I, I used a word that people didn't understand. That has never happened before. I mean, I think we all understand what the word like validate means, but there's a yeah, yeah, yeah. There. yeah, yeah. Like, this is a real thing. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. This isn't just so, you guys like sat around a coffee table, came up with a list of questions, right? And like put them on the internet. It was, right. it's, it's a bigger deal than that. It is a big deal. Um, and we didn't exactly. And we didn't try to validate our own, make up our own questions, validate them because it is hard to do. And we wanted someone else to have done that work. We had plenty of other work to do. So basically if you write a survey that tries to get at something, some part of dog personality or, you know, or any, any kind of a survey, you want to know a bunch of things about it. You want to know that if you give the same, well, let's just be this, the specific case of dog personality. If you ask the same owner to answer the same survey about the same dog six months apart, you want to know they're going to answer it in very similar ways. Now, some things may have changed in six months, but you want to know that it's basically the same. It's not wildly different. You want to know that if there's two owners of the dog and they both answer the survey at the same time, that they're going to answer roughly similarly, right? That it's not massively dependent on who's taking the survey. And you want to know that the answer, this is the hard part, because those first two things you can just test and do a correlation and be like done, right? The hard part is you want to know that the answers that you're getting are grounded in reality in some way. And so we can talk about like, is there a gold standard? Is there a ground truth? What can we compare this to? That's the really hard part because you don't, there's not like a manual for your dog where you can go look and see that he scores you know, he came out of his mom with a score of eight out of 10 on human sociability, and that's known. And so then you can just check the survey to see if the survey got that right. Like we don't, what is, what does human sociability even mean? Right. So, so then the really hard part of validating is to try to say, does this relate to reality in some way? Is this testing what we think it's testing? And, and is it getting a, a sort of semi-real answer? Um, and so p- other people did that for most of our survey questions. Uh, we had a couple cool questions thrown in there that some people noticed. I noticed one person was like, how is, how is this related to breed? And it's, it's not. Um, and not all those questions were meant to be related to breed. As I said, there's a lot of other stuff going on in that paper. But we worked um, with the IAABC. Do you remember off the top of the head, can you just spit out what that all stands for? Because I never, International, International Association, Association of Animal, Animal Behavior, Animal Behavior Consultants. Consultants. Thank you. Good, we did it in chorus. We worked with them. They came up with some cool questions that were supposed to be things that probably no one had trained their dog to do. So, you know, a lot of these questions are going to be, you know, if I, if I had worked with Sarah strumming really hard on having my dog not freak out when the UPS truck comes, then the dog is going to have, you know, display different behavior based on if I had not worked with Sarah strumming really hard to have my dog not freak out when the UPS truck comes. God, I wish that my dogs were so good. That was all I had to work on. But anyways, um, <laughs> so they came up with things that probably no one had tried to train their dog. And the two that I can always remember are like spins around before pooping and likes to lie with the legs out frog-legged. There were a bunch of other ones like that. Yeah. So those we didn't validate, but um, they also were not, they were sort of meant to be kind of a, a check on the others. Um, they were, they were not the hard hitting questions that people were super interested in, in finding stuff for. Okay. The inflammatory titles of these articles that are floating around are making it seem like what y'all discovered is that a dog's breed is not predictive of its personality. Can you talk about some of the conclusions and the findings that are actually written in the paper. Yeah. 
so one of the one of the things I would want to talk about there is just there's some subtlety in what that statement even means. What does it mean that a dog's breed is not predictive of its personality? And there's some things there that I think we can all just off the bat totally agree with. So the first thing is that dogs of a particular breed are not clones of each other and behaviorally. And Absolutely. I, or, or otherwise, but. Or um, anyway, yeah. But behaviorally, anyway, sure. but behaviorally is what I'm talking about, right? So I have literally talked to people who have said, that dog can't be aggressive. He's a golden retriever. I read it on the internet today. Yeah. It wasn't he can't, it was he shouldn't. Okay, yeah. He should never have, right? Yeah. Like, right. So sure. when so when you think that's obvious, everybody knows that there are aggressive golden retrievers and that dogs are individual. No, it is not obvious. There are people who don't realize that. And it's a very real problem in the sense of breed-specific legislation. I was deposed in a anti-breed-specific legislation case recently in which I really wanted this paper to have been published <laughs> because I wanted to hand it to them and say, Pitbull-type dogs, even if they are a purebred of one of the breeds that fall under the umbrella of, of Pitbull-type dogs, are not behavioral clones of each other. And even if you say, and I don't say, but even if you were to say that they were more likely to be aggressive to humans than some other breeds, that does not mean that 100% of them are like that. And so some of our interesting findings, by the way, were things like, not 100% of Labrador retrievers like to retrieve and not 100% of Labrador retrievers like to swim. Okay, yeah. Um, okay, like I'm not surprised by that. Now, the preponderance of labs like to retrieve and swim. And, and if anyone says that this paper found absolutely no signal of personality by breed, I would point to that question where we ask, does your dog like retrieving objects or sticks or, or balls or toys or something like that? I forget what the question is. And yes, Labrador retrievers much more commonly like to do that than other breeds of dogs, but not all of them. And that's the first thing that I think is really important to think about. And the other thing that I want to remind people is that when you think about your beloved breed, if you are in a particular breed and you think about that breed, you probably have in your mind, particularly if you breed these dogs, you probably have in your mind the particular way that that breed is sort of supposed to be, uh, what the breed club thinks of as the goal for the personality for that breed, what the kinds of people who are breeding along with you be that for the show ring or for agility or for field trials, how what they are breeding towards. And I want to remind you that that is just a small part of other populations that are also part of that breed for most breeds, right? Mm. So you, Sarah Streming, may think of most border collies as being similar to the sort of sporty border collies that you tend to work with, but there are other populations of border collies out there. And the, the example that I like to give people is, would you expect similar behavior from a show lab, a field lab, a lab bred to be an assistance or a guide dog, a backyard bred lab, a lab bred in a high volume, low animal welfare facility, commonly called a puppy mill. Would you expect all of those dogs to behave the same way? Absolutely not. Or the example I gave to somebody who I was arguing about this paper with earlier today is um, I am interested in border collies. However, the list of dogs that I don't want a puppy from is a longer list than the list of dogs I do because there's a huge population and I don't expect dogs from this kennel or this line or this lineage to act the way that dogs that from that dogs from this kennel do and then of course I expect within all of it for there to be huge variation in just looking at the border collies that I've owned and lived with. They're all the same breed. They have similarities, but I would say that they're more different than not. Yeah, and, and a lot of people have said, have asked, well, are the dogs that you studied in this paper well-bred? Big question, that's such a huge criticism. It's a big question. Out. 
And my answer is, first of all, there's no scientific definition of well-bred. So there's no way for us to adjust that. But we didn't want to. Like, if we could have, we wouldn't have. It would have, first of all, it would have made your pool way too small. (laughs) It would have. Right? You wanted a huge huge sample. That was one of the reasons that you did everything that we did. That's true. Was so that the sample could be as big as possible. If the sample was all well-bred, right? that's in quotations, it would have been much, much smaller. And you were very interested in looking at mutts. At mutts. And we were really interested in looking at pet dogs. And there are a lot of pet dogs who are not well-bred and we didn't want to exclude them. We wanted to look at everybody. So this was not a question of, is somebody capable of breeding dogs to have a particular kind of personality? Right, that wasn't right? the question. That's possible to do. Like, obviously, look at guide dogs. Like, look at guide argue, dogs. We, we know that's possible. Right. You can argue, and I would argue, about how hard it can be to do if you have other things that you're that you're also breeding for. That's sure. we may actually get to that later in this in this interview. But it's possible to do that. I'm of course it's possible to do that. But that's not what we were asking in this paper. What we were asking was what's going on with the pet dogs, uh, mostly in America, but there were some from internationally, but what's going on with pet dogs? That's what we were looking at. And then the final way I want to answer does, so does breed predict behavior? And you, you kind of said this already that there's a lot of variation in your dogs. And so if you had, if you went and like made a bunch of questions about where you would expect a border collie to tick all of those boxes, yes. I think it's useful for everybody to sit down and and write down all of those questions and then ask like how many dogs of this breed that I know really would tick all of those boxes. And for me, that's that's what the prediction is about. And I think we definitely should talk about what this means for people in terms of getting puppies. But for me, it means when you go to get a puppy of a particular breed, it means you're not going to McDonald's and getting a guaranteed burger that's going to be exactly the same as the last burger you got from mcdonald's yeah this dog may be different from the dog of the same breed that you had before i don't know sarah have you ever had a client come to you and be like but this dog is so different from the other dog that i had before but it's the same breed it's even like the same breeder uh like every single day basically and i was actually talking to a colleague before i got on this call about a client of hers who had a german shepherd 30 years ago I went and bought a German Shepherd two years ago. And the dog is nothing like their German Shepherd of, of yore. And they had they wound up returning the dog to the breeder. It was a completely different type of dog than what they had before. And they were really disappointed. And one of the things that I hear, you know, I talk about the purebred dog fancy as if I'm not in it. Like I've had purebred dogs a long time. <laughs> I have three purebred dogs and I plan to have more. And I appreciate what purebred dogs are. And one of the things that I hear is as kind of the ben- one of the benefits people talk about of buying a purebred dog is predictability and is predictability of, of certain breed traits. And I will say that's true and not true. So this has this paper has spun me a little bit because I actually I know you and I know how long this has been going on and I know this you know i think some people are treating it like y'all whipped it together in a weekend and slapped it together and this is this this ridiculous owner survey compilation which it's so far from being that but it is making me think okay when i go buy another border collie what am i doing that for knowing that every single border collie i've had has been drastically different from the previous border collie that i've had yeah. But what's the same about them that I keep going back for? Like, th- these are just questions that I keep, that I'm going, okay, then why do I do this when I can't actually know what this dog is going to be like? Why don't I then just go get, you know, whatever dog I think is cute off Pet Finder or whatever? Why do I agonize over pedigrees and breeders and whatever else? And it does come back to, I think, what, what they do tend to have in common because breed traits are real, do exist. 
some of them are good things. Arguably, a lot of things about border collies are not great, but that, that, you, that you can almost guarantee will show up. But I think that um, when articles are written about this paper, which is that's, I think everybody needs to understand that's what you're probably reading. If you've seen something get shared about this, it's probably an article about the paper, not the paper itself. And the article about the paper could say any number of things like, um, you shouldn't consider breed when you buy a dog. Doesn't matter. I think a lot of dog trainers are cringing and freaking out and going, wait, no, we already spend a lot of our time working on cases where these people bought the wrong dog for them. And our lives are really, really hard because they bought the wrong dog for them. And so there's not a lot we can do about that. And so we get scared of something coming out of science saying, yeah, it doesn't matter. Get the one you like what it looks like. And I think, and one thing I, I want to say in answer to that is, I mean, there's a lot to say about that. But one thing I want to say mm -hmm. is what we really want people to understand is that if you, your best way to have a dog that fits well into your home no matter what the breed, is to interact with the breeder who is producing those dogs. And I'm, I'm now just talking about going to a breeder. We'll put getting a dog from a shelter aside. So I'm not saying this to say you shouldn't get a dog from a shelter, but that's a different process, right? So if you're getting a dog from a breeder, you're buying a, a purebred puppy, you should do so from a breeder who knows their lines well, and you should tell that breeder what your expectations of the dog are, right. what you want the dog for, what you can provide for the dog, what's a deal breaker for you. And you should find the kind of breeder who is willing to say, and who is happy to say, this is not the right dog for you, if it's true. And then you should listen to them. Like that's the real message, right? And at that point, it doesn't matter what breed, because you're going to go, you'll go to the Malinois breeder and they'll be like, I don't think this is the right dog for you if you don't have time to walk it and you have a two-year-old crawling on the floor and help me out here, Sarah, so I don't piss off the Malinois breeders. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to piss them off. If you are not interested in bite sports, <laughs> it's probably right, right. for you. I do want, I mean, maybe this is the right time then to address the fact that if you go, so you said very kindly and correctly, be careful with what you're reading, that you may be reading what a journalist's take on the paper is rather than the actual paper. If you go to the page that the paper is hosted on, you will find a paragraph at the beginning of that before what we, the authors, wrote, which is the take of an editor of the journal that the paper is published in. It was not written by the authors, but that little paragraph does end with saying, that you should not use breed to determine what kind of dog you're buying as a pet. And again, the authors didn't write that. And I don't want to speak for anybody else but myself. I disagree with that statement. And I have no power to have it taken down. <laughs> right, right. And that's just kind of, that's how it is. I mean, that's how it is. And so I think what's important for everybody is to, you know, if you're interested in it, read the paper yourself, maybe come to your own conclusions, maybe not freak out about the titles and the statements like that, that are interpretations and not written by the authors. But what could this information, you know, rather than continuing to go down what misinterpretations are problematic, because of course they are. And of course, we know that there are going to be certain common traits that you might expect more of in certain grades, which, like you said, you did demonstrate. Labrador retrievers like to fetch stuff, etc. right? Do you remember when it was the day that we first found this particular finding that's one of my favorite findings in the paper? And I actually messaged you. It was like a year ago. And I was like, we found the strongest signal 
in border collies. And I was like, it was for biddability. And then I was like, guess what? The other breed on the other end of the spectrum is that's the least like that. And you were like, what is it? And I was like, it's a beagle. <laughs> I remember this conversation. Yeah. And I was just so pleased that we found that. I thought it was really cool. You found that, yes, border collies showed up strongly in your biddability. That and, uh, and herding breeds in general, right, showed up strongly in that way. Which I think most people would agree with. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Most purebred dog fanciers would probably agree with that. I would agree with that. Yeah. And, and I also want to say like a lot of people asked questions like, well, did you look at like herding and things like that? No, we didn't. That wasn't, this was a pet dog paper. It was not a working dog paper. And so there are things that border collies are likely to do, like try to herd your children that we didn't ask those questions. Right. Right. And so I also think that that's probably um, interesting too, as far as, you know, when we say breed may not be predictive of personality, when it's not a working dog survey and you're not actually looking at the traits that the dog was select originally selected for, then you may see less commonality, right? So if I'm looking at pet dog qualities amongst my border collies, my parents' pugs, my sister's um, super mutt, my Icelandic sheepdog, I might see that the border collies are more different then like this border collie that you see on Zoom on my lap, high in the snuggle survey. You know what, if that's a question, like how affectionate, how physically affectionate this dog, this dog's extremely phys physically affectionate. He's going to come out with more in common with the pugs in the family. So you were looking at yeah, yeah. Pet, well, dog so, actually, treat, pet dog qualities, not working dog qualities. Right, right, exactly. And, and the other thing I want to say is, and again, this is my interpretation of the paper, but my interpretation of behavioral genetics has always been that genetics sets you up to be more likely to be a particular thing. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you're interested in a dog who is, like, again, we found the signal of biddability in herding dogs. That does not mean that every herding dog is biddable. I live with one who's not, but it means you are more likely to get that in a herding dog. So it's not, again, breed doesn't, it is not a good way of predicting behavior. It's not like, okay, I, I, I need a guarantee of my dog being, being highly biddable. So I'm going to get a herding dog. Well, you may not get one that's highly biddable, but you'll increase your likelihood of it. Yes. And you, of course, of course, might increase your likelihood more if you know the parents and the grandparents and maybe the siblings. Yes. And they, sure, they sure exhibit those traits yeah. as well. So what do we do with this information? What do you feel like, what do you, what good does this paper do in the world? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm coming at it from like, isn't this cool that we're finally, like, I, I'm really excited that we actually did the genome wide association study where we looked at the individual traits of actual individual dogs and then sequenced those dogs. And, and this paper is also one of the first ones in which we use this new approach to sequencing, uh, which I'm not going to get into because I know you, your population probably doesn't care all that much, but we got much more detailed sequencing data than some of the, the genotyping approaches that have been used in these previous, like that's the stuff I'm excited about, right? So that, and then like the, the stuff we did where we were like, gosh, mutts out there are, are, a lot of them are super mixy and gosh, people really tend to use like specific things, like whether a dog is black and white will make them really think it's a border collie mix, even if there's nothing, you know, even, you know, if there's no border collie in there, like that's the stuff I think is cool. So like, what kinds of questions are you asking here? Like, are you asking about how we should use this paper to help us decide how to get our next puppy? I don't think this paper should be used to help you decide how to get your next puppy because that's not what we tested. Excellent. I think that's good to just kind of state. I mean, we didn't test it, right? So that wasn't we could the have, well, we yeah. couldn't have, but there, you could do a test. Yeah, this would be a pain in the ass, but you could do it. You could ask people, you could give some people the set of information and, and 
say, you know, go pick your dog based on breed. And then you could have other people, you could tell them to pick their dog, not based on breed. And then you could check to see who's happier. That'd be a rough study to do, but you know, that would be the way that you would test something like this. Right. So I think that, you know, the paper, especially because of the articles that have been written about the paper is kind of flying around my circle. So lots of dog pros, lots of dog enthusiasts. Mostly people are mad about it because they think that it says breed doesn't matter when it comes to behavior. Actually, there's a subset of professionals who are really opposed to considering breed when it comes to behavior. And that subset of individuals feels very validated right now. And then the individuals myself included, who believe strongly that breed should be considered when it comes to the behavior, but also the welfare concerns um, with the dog are feeling like, wait, 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 that's not what the paper says, <laughs> right? Right. And it's starting to be a little bit of a situation of everybody kind of making it say what they want it to say, or if they think they can't make it say what they want it to say, they think it's stupid. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, I think it's I think it's really interesting to use this as an opportunity to take a step back and say how much what of what I believe about my breed is the stories that we tell ourselves about the breed and wow. how much of it is really real for all the dogs in the breed or how much of it is real for some subpopulation of dogs in the breed. And how, you know, how many Labradors like to retrieve and are there some that don't, you know, what are some things maybe that we really think, like one of the interesting findings was that uh, like we didn't see as strong a signal in human sociability. We didn't see that retrievers, I really thought retrievers would come out as much more human sociable than other breeds. And I mean, they were definitely on that end of the spectrum, but there wasn't, a, they didn't like pull away from the pack as much as I thought they would. So one thing that I came away from that was there's more retrievers out there who aren't all that psyched about people. Like, and I remember like the golden retriever that I met on the street and I offered to pet her and her owner's like, hang on, let me hold her still so she doesn't run away. <laughs> Never mind, it's okay. I don't like, need no. you that badly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, there's a lot of goldens who really love people, but then there's my... There's my English shepherd who we were just at a nose work trial today. And I like, he must've kissed 20 people. Like he thought that being there was the best opportunity to get to kiss people. And, you know, not that English shepherds are known to be like massively aloof, but that's not a particular breed characteristic. That's more of a golden retriever breed characteristic. So just right. think about, you know, like dogs actually are, are individuals. And, and I, you know, I don't agree for sure with some of the statements that are out there about you know, breed just not mattering at all. No, I think, I think for sure it sets up likelihoods. In genetics, we like to say risk, but you know, risk sounds like a bad thing, but it sets up likelihoods. You're more likely to get a particular thing maybe, but just think about how, you know, I, I think it's, it's, it's really interesting food for thought. Well, it is interesting and maybe just pushing us to think of behavior, think of breed as maybe one factor only. And actually behavior is a study of one always. So we need yeah. to always be taking into account the individual. I mean, I've had somebody tell me that my dogs wait on their stations so well because they're born hugs. Mm. And that they're born doing that, right? Right. And that their dogs, which are a different breed, can't do that because X breed can't do that. So yeah, we tell a lot of stories and maybe, maybe the conclusion is, look at your actual data and not your stories about, about what's going on. So one of the other um, things that keeps coming up in circles of people talking about this paper is that they're saying that the paper claims that genetics don't have anything to do with behavior. And I know that that would basically undo your entire professional life. Yeah. If that were true. <laughs> so talk about that. You're not talking about, when you're talking about breed, you're not talking about genetics. Like, talk right. about what, what is the difference? What are we talking about here? Right, right, right. So for sure, we were looking for genetic signals in the DNA that were associated with particular behavioral traits. We found some, not as many as we would have liked. That's because of the sample size. Like literally in the human studies, they have 
hundreds of thousands of people in these studies, and we had 2,000 dogs in the genetic portion. Many more than that in the survey-only portion, but <clears throat> 2,000 dogs is pretty, is pretty impressive for a canine behavioral genetic study, but I'm just, to give you the, the perspective, um, in humans, it's hundreds of thousands. Like, I think 500,000 is what they're up to in some of them recently. And they're still like, that's, that's where they're starting to find stuff. So genetics, so we know that pretty much all behavior has some, is influenced by genetics at some, in some way, more or less. And that there's also a large proportion of environmental influence. So that's, no one's, no one's disagreeing with that. The question is whether particular behaviors fixed are completely the same in a particular breed, or if particular behaviors are overwhelmingly look a particular way in a particular breed. And, and again, I think we all agree that we don't really expect particular behaviors to be completely fixed in a breed. But the question is whether behavior is sort of overwhelmingly or very strongly in one way in a particular breed. That's, that's where this question is that we're talking about. But there's absolutely, I mean, the paper set out to find genetic associations with behavior. There's, there's no question of genetics definitely does affect behavior. Okay. You heard it here, people. Genetics definitely affect behavior. <laughs> so you had mentioned when we were talking um, before we started recording about some supplemental materials that you thought were important yes. Yes. to bring up. So yeah. Yeah. So as I said, this was a really long paper with a lot of studies in it and a lot of information. And also Kathleen, by the way, who I mentioned, the first author of the paper, uh, she makes some pretty good figures. She's very good at data visualization. I think if she hadn't been a scientist, she would have been an artist. She's really, really good at that stuff. And so she made a lot of really interesting figures representing some of the data. And it didn't make, they, a lot of them didn't make it into the main paper because um, the way the journal science works is it tries to keep the individual articles pretty short, but the way genetics works these days is that then you put it all into the supplemental materials, which is only online, uh, but that is also freely available to you. I mean, the paper is open access and the supplemental part of the paper is open access. And um, Sarah and I have talked about how she'll include a link to the supplemental materials yes. as well. They're not hard to find. You go to the paper, you scroll down to the bottom right before the references start. There's a link to them. It's another big PDF. And I'll tell you, so the supplemental tables all start with, with S. So table starting around figure S10, there start being some really interesting stuff, some interesting data visualization of some of the signals that we saw coming out of breeds. One thing that you'll see, I mean, this is actually in the main paper, um, but one thing that you'll see, and it's visualized beautifully in the supplementals, is that there was a stronger influence of breed on behavior than of age or size, mm. which I was actually kind of surprised by. I, I did that analysis and I thought there would be a much stronger influence of size. I thought small dogs would be much more likely to be fearful. We did not actually find that. And that really surprised me. There was, there were a couple of questions where age had a really strong impact for most of them. Age mm. didn't have a really big impact, but there's a couple of questions. Do you want to guess what they were about? With age? What? Toys. <laughs> oh, with toys. Toys, energy level. I was right? going to say energy level for sure. Yeah, no toys. Puppies like toys. So, you know, we saw that signal for age. And so if you look at the, I think it's in the supplemental that there's the, um, you'll see for age, it's like there's very little signal. And then just for a couple of questions, there's suddenly this big signal. And that's yeah. like, those are the, like the toy related and the, the energy related questions. Um, but you can look and see, and you'll see that there's a bigger signal for breathe and then there is for age or size. And, um, and also like the number 9% has been thrown around because that's was the median of, there was a bunch of questions where there was no signal. So that pulls the median down. Um, there were some questions where instead of 9%, it was 25% of the behavior was of the behavior was explained by breed. So some things to keep in mind that if you go, it's, it's very hard because it's a big paper and there's a lot going on in it. And so, and then we want to go read the whole thing with all these studies and come out and say, yes or no, does breed affect behavior? I don't think it's fair to try to pull the paper down into that one sentence, but obviously that's the way the world works these days. But I think that different people produce that sentence differently, right? So like, I may not agree 
with everyone about how to phrase the results of the paper in one sentence. I think that breed does affect behavior. I think the paper shows that. You can go look and the supplemental materials, again, are a great place to look to see that. And so again, and I think it's worth noting too that so much of what people are reading is journalist interpretations of the paper. Yeah. So it will be important for everybody to read the actual paper and the supplemental materials, which will both be linked. <laughs> That'll take you a couple, a couple uh, weeks well, to do. <laughs> when I say read the supplemental materials, I mean you mean skim, scroll the table down S10 and look to at S10, it. Take a peek. <laughs> That's all I'm going to do. I think scroll it's all like down. 30 or something. So yeah, yeah don't scroll down to S10, take a peek and uh, yeah, move on. Or you don't have to, you can just- Or, or, or yeah. And, and just remember, like I've seen a lot of people asking questions where they are assuming that the whole paper is about this one question of just breed effect behavior. And so like one person was like, but the paper's full of mutts. And I was like, yes, we didn't use them in that. <laughs> we didn't use them for that question. We used them for some of the other questions. Yeah, and actually you know? that was one of my questions before I actually read it. Because yeah. um, when we're looking at does breed affect behavior, but then we're looking at mixed breed dogs. Well, so two um, things, two things. Yeah. One thing is ironically, um, our pet name for the paper in the lab is the mutt paper. That's what we call it. Um, and that's how we think of it. And, and we're all very fond of it. Um, but we call it the mutt paper. We don't call it the breed doesn't matter paper. So call it the mutt paper. Okay. Well, okay. the mutt paper. That's its name, and we have a Slack channel. It's the 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 mutt paper channel. What was the other thing I was about to say? Because I said two things and I got distracted. What were we talking about? Oh, the the use of mutts. Oh, we actually did uh, actually kind of use the mutts to try to assess so uh, breed and behavior because mutts are made up of breeds in large part. Yes. And so if you ask people, is your golden retriever friendly? We were concerned that people might say yes, even when the dog wasn't because they knew it was a golden, they knew goldens were supposed to be friendly. And so that's just sort of what they answered without really, I mean, not intentionally, but- Like that the person who was gonna just hold their dog still for you might've said yes. Yes, she's friendly. I'll just hold her here so that right. she'll be friendly. Hold her so um, she'll run away. Right. So is there, is there owner bias? And one thing that we did was we looked at the effect of breed in mutts on some of these characteristics. Okay. So for example, and I'm going to have trouble remembering specifics here. This was um, an analysis I started out doing this analysis, but someone else finished it and I don't have it all loaded into my brain. But so for example, if I ask a purebred golden retriever owner, is your dog friendly? How, you know, how strong a signal do I get for golden retrievers being friendly? But if I ask a dog, uh, if I ask a lot of mutt owners with varying percentages of golden in their dogs, mm -hmm. and then I look to see if sociability correlates with how much golden is in their dogs then I can get, it is another way of asking the same question. So that gets around because they either aren't gonna know, like if they have 10% golden, they're not even gonna know, right? And they're probably not, and they're not gonna have the same bias and belief about their dog. And so I think I'm gonna say this wrong, but I think like, I think biddability was one of the ones that came through well, that like, if you had some hurting dog in you, you tended to be a bit more biddable. And again, this takes, large sample size to see. It's, I don't want people to say, I'm going to go do an embark test of my dog and see that it has 12% border collie. And therefore it's going to definitely be more biddable than if it didn't. Um, this is a, a signal that we see over many, many dogs and is not a good way of predicting, but um, is an interesting thing to look at. Does that make sense? Yes. I think it's an interesting thing to look at. I think you're right. I think one of the things, I think it's interesting. I think it's great. I think having mutts involved in things like this is important because of the enormous population of them that exists. Like if we are only ever talking about purebred dogs, are we talking about dogs, right? Collectively. And one thing that I think is interesting when we start to involve just anecdotally, if you're involving mixed breeds when you're talking about behavior is that I find as a professional, and I 
think most of my colleagues would agree that if I go into a situation and first of all, and it's a known cross because like we talked about identifying mixed breeds by what they look like is basically impossible to do accurately. If I go in and it's a known cross and it's something pretty intense, like say a border collie, but it's crossed with maybe a bunch of other stuff or something less intense, I generally find that the dog is watered down a little bit. Like they tend not to be as extreme mm-hmm. in their in any of their behaviors. So if we're looking at mixed breed dogs. I tend not to find extremes in behaviors the way that I find them in pure dogs. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and it's what you would expect. You would expect that if you breed two dogs that are very different on a particular behavioral trait, you expect most of the puppies to fall in between. You might expect every so often to get a puppy that's at one of the extremes, right? Sure. Probably most of them are going to be in between. Sure. And it's kind of, you know, it's the same with, you know, if we're going to talk about health, if I'm breeding um, a purebred dog that is set up to have XYZ health problems to another dog that's not set up to have those health problems, like you're going to find a range of things, but probably the puppies are going to be probably less affected by those things yeah. at a purebred pairing than a yeah. purebred pairing would produce. Yeah. And yeah, I would agree with that. Although I would also add that health problems are a little, they're similar, but different in some ways than personality, but yeah, I would, yeah. I would agree with that. Okay. So the paper, the uh-huh. paper does demonstrate that breed and behavior are linked in some ways. Yeah. Also demonstrates a boatload of other stuff because it's a big paper. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> we encourage everybody to, to look at the actual paper. The actual but I'm paper. so sympathetic to that too. Like it's got a lot in it and it's complicated. I was trying yeah. to, so I reread it this morning to prep for this interview. I was at an NW1 trial. So I'm like in my car in between searches reading this. <laughs> and I was like, I know, right? Oh my God. And I was like, I I don't, I mean, it's like, it's rough. Like, I don't want to tell someone to read it. It's long and complicated and it uses language that expects you to have a PhD in genetics to understand. Absolutely does. I get that. And so I wish that we want to read a journalist's interpretation for a layperson. Of course we do. The journalist is a layperson too and read this. Yeah. And then wrote it for you dogs dogs I don't know like journalists really like writing about dogs and they really like saying things that uh surprise people well of course they like to say something that's going to get attention right yeah and and I'm hearing people say like there's I'm hearing people say like that they people who get what the paper's about and say you know I support the paper but I'm really worried it's going to be used in clickbaity articles that are, you know, that sort of say dangerous things. And I think it's dangerous to say to someone, it doesn't matter what breed of dog you get, because- I think it's really clickbaity and really dangerous, yes. (laughs) And I don't have control over that. And I, I deeply believe that it is not right for people to not do science because someone could write a clickbaity article about it. Like that is not the way for society to move forward. And at the same time, I am really anxious about, you know, some of the messaging that's out there around this paper. And I mean, I'm going to be like this. I didn't know. I I had no way of knowing how this paper was going to be covered until everything dropped. Right. Uh, Which was two days ago now. So at the time of this recording. And so I'm two days in and I have spent those two days basically on Facebook answering questions about the paper. But when the fur dies down a little bit, I am really hoping to sit back and think about like, will I have time to try to write something like an interpretation? Like, I also don't want to ask people to have to listen to this whole podcast interview because <laughs> this is long too. It is. Um, <laughs> but we're so, so charming know. and delightful that they will of course listen. Yes. And they will love it. Yes. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. And I, I get that telling people to read the paper. I mean, thank you for saying it, but Here's the thing. I it's not it totally it realistic. It's really hard to read. Yeah. I'm not yeah. an academic. Yeah. It is hard to read. I yeah. don't understand all of it. The graphics, like you said, are, are excellent though. Um, and 
I guess though, where I'm coming from is if you want to have an opinion about it, I would love it if your opinion was as informed as it can be. Yeah. And the way for it to be as informed as it can be is for you to read the actual paper, not the journalist's interpretations of the paper. Yeah. Yeah. And I do hope that you write your own interpretation. Yeah, we'll see. In my copious free time. Um, but yes. I, I am recognizing that it's an important thing to do. And I'm thinking next week after I sleep for a few days, I'll sit down and think about if there's something I can or should or will do. I can arrange for people to send you chocolate <gasps> as a reward. <laughs> chocolate fudge brownie Ben and Jerry's ice cream. <laughs> we'll just get a shipment. Because my husband's cutting me off, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay. Chocolate is love, Sarah. All I need is chocolate to feel love. Woman works for chocolate, everybody. All right, Jessica. Thank you. Is there anything you think we missed that you would like to add? No, this is, this was excellent. Thank you very much for letting me put it all in one place so I can point people to it. Then they can be like, God damn it. You want me to listen to a whole, (laughs) here's this hour plus conversation. We cover all of those things. But it, um, it helps me to sort of, it, it, it also like, it got me to reread the paper, which was, it was good to reread it after hearing everybody's pushback about it to get my thoughts more in order about it and uh, good to have a place to talk about it. So thank you so much. Wow. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to subscribe and leave me a review. If you'd like to support this podcast, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio. You might even hear me answer your question on the show. For more content like the stuff you heard here, check out my online courses at cog-dog-classroom.teachable.com.